locate that, and our text will be uh, verses 1 to 6. So here in the first 10 chapters of Matthew, we see the presentation of Jesus, and, and I would say that he's presented not only to Israel and to the disciples, but uh, also we see Jesus, a Savior and, and Messiah. He's presented to the world, and he's presented to us. Um, so, Matthew begins this gospel with a genealogy of Jesus, followed by the appearance of an angel of the Lord to instruct Joseph, and then Jesus is born. In chapter 2, wise men come from the east to worship him. You see his baptism by John the Baptist in chapter 3. Chapter 4, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted, and afterward he begins preaching and teaching in Galilee, and then there's the calling of the disciples, and the Sermon on the Mount, followed by various miracles of healing, and he calms the wind and the waves of the sea in the presence of his disciples. He raises a young girl from the dead. Then in chapter 10, he instructs the disciples, and he sends them out with power to preach the kingdom and to heal all kinds of diseases. And so starting in chapter 11, where we'll be today and following, there's a series of responses to Jesus. And these are responses by uh, different individuals and by uh, different groups. And this is followed to, by Jesus' responses to the responders. And through this, we, the 21st century readers, as we read this today, uh, we're learning more and more about who Jesus is. And so today we're going to look at a response, a response of John the Baptist. So as is our custom, if you would stand, please, and we'll read Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, and then we'll have prayer and get into the Word. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word that we might learn about our Savior. And may he be known and believed on and glorified among his people. We thank you that Jesus came to the world to save us from our sins. Teach us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that I've been thinking about over the uh, past several months and I've been reading books, I've read several books on this subject, is uh, why do so many young people who were raised in a Christian home, you know, why do so many of them leave the church after they graduate from high school and, and move out on their own? 
And as I look around here, I don't think that's been a problem so much here at Berean Fellowship as it is in the church throughout the country. And, you know, I've just looked at a lot of, of statistics, and of course statistics are just numbers, but they represent people, you know, and I've just thought a lot about uh, um, why is this happening? Why are so many young people leaving the church? Um, so statistically, two-thirds of the young people who went to Sunday school or church for a, at least a year while they were growing up will leave the church by the time they're 30 years old. And uh, people who study this say there are many reasons. Um, one is that they don't think that the Bible is relevant to them. They don't think that the church is relevant in their daily lives. And by relevant, I mean rational, connected. You know, many people attend church, but they don't develop a day-to-day relationship with the Lord through His Word, and, and they don't have a, a relationship with the church where they're doing things with other believers and spending time with, with other believers. And I was so pleased to see uh, four young people in our recent uh, membership class. And, you know, we're glad for the other five as well. We had nine people all together, but... <laughs> but uh, because I was studying this subject, and to see, you know, I think this is the first time we've we've ever had uh, four people in their in their teens to to be there, and, that, and that's great. Um, you know, the way to survive is, from what I read, the way to survive in a secular college, you know, which is not a very good environment, oftentimes for a Christian. Uh, the way to survive in a secular college or university, or or maybe even a young person going out into the workforce. Uh, the way to survive with your faith intact is to have a, a daily relationship with God through His Word and, and to be in fellowship with other believers and to be doing things with, with other believers in the church. And, you know, I, I just I think the uh, Berean Scholarship Program that, that we've started, uh, you know, that was a great idea. I wish it had been my idea, but it was a great idea, and uh, I think it's going to be very good to, to, to keep, we want to keep people connected because we can't live this Christian life uh, on our own by ourselves. So I chose this text for today because this question that John the Baptist asked uh, of Jesus, he sent his messengers to ask of Jesus, is, is as relevant for us today as it was when it was asked 2,000 years ago. And this is as relevant as it was to the original hearers. Uh, John's question there in verse 3 is a question for all of us. And I think it connects us to this text, if you think about it. It's a real connection here. Is Jesus the coming one, or do we look for another? And I think the question itself implies that we're all looking for something, everyone. Uh, we're looking for something to lift us up and, and to give us meaning in our life. And uh, for some people, it, it may be a husband or it may be a wife, uh, an education or a career. I heard someone say that, that we all, every one of us, we messiahify something. So another powerful connection that I see here in, in just in these six verses is um, Jesus' startling statement there in verse 6. And blessed is he who's not offended because of me. I, I'm always afraid that the Lord is, is going to be offended because of me. And here he says it the other way around. So um, whether you're a believer or not, you know, what, what are your expectations for Jesus? 
you know, what, what do you expect of him? And are you offended because of Jesus? We'll see more about this as, as we go through here. But, you know, the Bible and Christianity and Berean fellowship itself, you know, it's, it's all about a person. You know, all these things are about a person, Jesus Christ. You know, the things that we do and, and our worldview and how we talk and how we live, uh, these are all our response to Jesus Christ, to the presentation of Jesus Christ here in his word. So if you think with me about this, um, the world around us is demonstrating its response to Jesus. And I mean the whole world. He's not a local God or a God of certain countries. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The Samaritans in John chapter 4, they said he is the Savior of the world. We know this is the Savior of the world. And uh, his fame was throughout Syria. And the gospel has gone out to the whole world. So if you watch the news on television or, or wherever you might get the news, I know it comes from all sorts of places today, um, you can become discouraged, you know, as a believer. You can become discouraged looking at the world's response. But I think all of chapter 11, the, the longer I studied this chapter, the more I realized that in this, Jesus is giving us a lesson about not following public opinion. For example, if you would look at the verses 18 and 19, Matthew eleven eighteen. It says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. So John was an austere man. He was uh, separated. Uh, he separated himself, and the people did like John for a while, but then they turned away. They turned on him and said he had a demon. Now, of course, John ate and drank. He had to do that to stay alive. But what this means is that he didn't go to banquets and dinners with sinners. He, he separated himself and he stayed apart from them. Now, Jesus didn't separate himself from sinners, and they didn't like that either. You know, no, no matter which way it went, uh, uh, they didn't like that. And so I say this is, is this whole chapter is a lesson on, on uh, not following public opinion, not getting caught up in public opinion. You, you see this chapter, Jesus goes on to rebuke the cities where he did his mighty works. And then he says these things are hidden from the wise and prudent and they're revealed to babes. And the chapter ends with a very gracious invitation where Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. So we can be of good cheer, for Jesus has overcome the world. So let's go ahead and look at this text, uh, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So As I mentioned earlier in the previous chapter, in chapter 10, Jesus sent his disciples out with with power. He gave them power over unclean spirits and to heal all kinds of sickness and disease. 
now he himself goes out to teach and to preach in Galilee. Verses 2 and 3. Now when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? So we see here, it appears that John is experiencing doubt, and he's saying to Jesus, are you really the one? Is this one the Messiah? And I think this is because of John's own suffering. He's been in prison for at least a year, and he was facing execution. And I think it's fair to say this is not the situation that John the Baptist was expecting. John's the man who had said about Jesus, behold, or look, you know, look at this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John knew this by divine revelation. John the Baptist was God's prophet to reveal who Jesus is. He was the messenger to prepare the way for Messiah. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, you know. The king is coming. And John the Baptist was in prison because he had told Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And not only that, but here in, in verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. So if we put all this together, John was a prophet. He was a messenger to to prepare the way for Messiah. And when he stood for righteousness and denouncing Herod, you know, and he was a great man, and yet he's in prison facing execution. So in this confinement, he's having doubts, and, and perhaps he's even having disappointment. You know, he knew the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah, and I'll just give a couple. There are many more. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and John would surely have known this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Isaiah 35, 4, say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So in prison, John heard about what uh, Jesus was doing. And I think he may have been thinking, well, where's the judgment? And look at verse 14, chapter 11, verse 14. Jesus says, and if you are willing to receive it, he, that is John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. You know, Elijah also had a crisis of faith. Uh, God gave him a great victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And it's reasonable to assume that after God had revealed himself with power over these false prophets on the mountain. It's reasonable to assume that Elijah could have thought there's going to be repentance. There's going to be repentance even among Ahab and Jezebel, the king and the queen. He thought there'd be repentance, but instead Jezebel's going to have him killed. 
And she said, she sent a messenger to him to say, oh, so let the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So remembrance in First Kings, I think, chapter 19, Elijah ran away and he went out into the desert and he prayed that he would die. And he said something in there that um, has always struck me. He said, I'm no better than my father's. I've thought about that a lot about myself. You know, uh, uh, you ever look at your father growing up and think, well, you know, what's the, what's the matter with him or something like that? And then you get to be a, a father yourself and an adult and, and you find out there's a difference. I don't know if that's what he meant, but that's something that's always stuck with me in that story. Elijah ran away, went out in the desert. He prayed that he would die. He was ready to give up. But God didn't leave him in that condition. So it's the same here with John. Uh, uh, Jesus says there's never been a greater person in the history of the world up to then. And this person we see is having doubts. So what does that say about each one of us? You know, any one of us can have questions and any one of us can have doubts and any one of us can fall into this kind of thinking. You know, the book of Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. You know, God knows our frame. He knows that we can become greatly distressed in this world. But then Jesus doesn't leave us in doubt, as we'll see in verse 6. God always challenges us with the truth. But there can be circumstances in our life that, that make it hard to believe. But, you know, I rest in the fact that God never asks us to believe anything that isn't true you know jesus is the way and he's the truth and and he's the life you know just um give me a testimony for myself god has answered all the questions that that i've had over uh, a pretty long time of being a christian and oftentimes uh, i've received an answer as soon as i start looking for it you know right away i i find the answer to some problem or something that that i, I don't understand in the bible but I can remember a couple of times where I had to wait for actually for some years to, to find out, you know, something that was troubling me in the Word that I had to wait a long time. Uh, you know, your questions would be different from mine, but uh, I think we all have questions and, and we all have things that we don't understand. But there shouldn't be anything that we should ever fear learning, you know. We shouldn't ever fear having any kind of, of questions because God's word is the truth, and, and we should take it for that. Now, something that's important to this teaching is, is what were the Jewish expectations for the Messiah? Obviously, uh, John the Baptist's expectations would have been uh, more advanced than the general Jewish population, but uh, the Jewish uh, expectation for Messiah was that he would set up some sort of visible reign here on the earth reign of righteousness and salvation, and that he would throw off the yoke of Rome and restore Israel to its former greatness under David and Solomon. And even the disciples, they, they seized at all of the ideas of messianic glory. But it looks so, as though nothing Jesus ever said about betrayal and suffering and uh, his scourging and his death and things like that. Nothing that he said about that ever made any kind of permanent uh, impression on them. 
You remember when Jesus told the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many things and be killed. And, and Peter took him off to the side and said, this will never happen to you. You remember that? And, and there's a, a couple of times when uh, Jesus is uh, talking to the disciples and he's telling them that he's going to suffer and that he's going to die and all these things. And right after that, they're arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom, you know, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom. So here's Jesus, he's the Messiah, but he isn't doing what John the Baptist expected. You know, Jesus came the first time to atone for our sins, to provide salvation uh, for us. Judgment will come when he returns. You know, judgment will come when he, when he returns, comes back the second time. Before Jesus' birth, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, and this is in Matthew one twenty-one, and he's saying to Mary, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. The sin issue had to be settled before anything else, and it's the same with each of us. The first thing is we have to settle the sin issue, and that's done in believing in Jesus Christ. So the question before us, is Jesus the one, the one who sets us free from our sins? Is, is he the Savior, or should we look for another? You know, there's none like Jesus. There's no other Messiah. He's God's provision for our sins, and only in him do we have freedom from our guilt. And so, as I said earlier, the whole world is looking for something. They're looking for this one. But the Bible only gives us two alternatives, Jesus or something else. So verses 4 and 5, Jesus begins to answer John, and he says, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So Jesus here is not quoting a specific Old Testament verse, but he's giving a summary of what Scripture says about salvation. Concerning when the Messiah comes, Isaiah 35 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. And there's another Messianic quote that we looked at earlier in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He's anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. So Jesus is, is saying, look at what Scripture says. The Messiah is supposed to go to the weak. He's supposed to go to the poor. So we might think about, uh, this is speculation, but what is behind John the Baptist's question? Matthew 3.11, John himself identifies Jesus as, He who is coming after me is mightier than I. You know, and this may be the root of John's doubt. And John goes on to say, He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he may have been thinking, if Jesus is Messiah, shouldn't he be strong? Shouldn't he bring judgment? John may be thinking, I'm your herald. I'm, I'm the herald of the king, and here I am in prison, and I'm about to be executed. My life is, is about to be ended. How could you be Messiah if you're so weak? 
And Jesus responds by saying that the Messiah's ministry is to the weak, it's to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the lame, the leper, and so forth. He's showing that John the Baptist had fallen into a worldly way of thinking, a worldly way of seeing salvation. You know, what makes faith in Christ what it is? Uh, when John asks, ask, are you the coming one? Jesus answers, look at who I spend my time with. I come into the life of the poor and the blind and the deaf and lepers and so forth. Now, none of us may literally be any of those things, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A Christian may not be literally poor, but I think we all know that we come to Jesus with no assets. They're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins. You know, we're not looking for a ledger that says, uh, well, here are all the good things I've done and here are all the bad things I've done and I hope this one outweighs the other. No, the difference between faith in Jesus and everything else is that Christianity is about a person. It's about Messiah. It's about uh, the Savior. So a Christian sees himself as having no assets in need of a Savior Someone has to save him, and it's the Holy Spirit who shows us our need. You know, the Spirit of God reveals Christ to us. So when Jesus is asked if he's the Messiah, he points to his welcome of the weak. You know, he came the first time not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He didn't come to help the strong save themselves, but that the weak may receive salvation by grace. And you know, what if he had come in judgment the first time? Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. Psalm 130 verse 3 says if God kept a record, who could stand? I mean, if he had come in judgment the first time, none of us would be left. But thank the Lord, he came the first time to bring salvation. Judgment will follow later. So verse 6, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And this Greek word here for offended is a scandalon, which from it we get the word scandalized. You know, blessed is anyone who is not scandalized because of me. Here it means to offend someone so much that they don't believe. You know, there's much in the Bible that offends our worldly attitudes, uh, Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. You know, there are many people who find Christianity offensive. And Jesus is saying to us, to those who have 
Christ to hear. He's saying this, don't let that happen to you. So I want to point out two ways that Jesus is offensive to our human nature. People are offended because of the things, because of the things that Jesus claims about himself. Uh, those things imply something about you, and they imply something about me. To say Jesus is Lord means that none of us have the ability to decide how we ought to live. And that's insulting to our ego, right? It's insulting to our independence. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. That means we're lost, right? And we're in need of a Savior. Furthermore, we have no ability to save ourselves. He said he's the light of the world. Well, that implies if we're not walking in him, we're in darkness, right? And so there's, there's another way that uh, we can have our, our pride or our uh, ego insulted. You know, all these things that, that he said about himself uh, offend our pride. And instead of being offended, we should humbly accept the fact, and it is a fact, that we're all sinners. And we should look at what he's done for us. You know, the more you see your sin, the more precious his love will be. The more you value your, uh, the more you'll value your salvation when you, when you look at your own sin. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. If your understanding of your sin is small, so will be your love for the Lord. You know, but to whom little is given, the same loves little, Jesus said in Luke chapter 7. So the more we sense our spiritual poverty, the more we will sense uh, God's infinite love for us. Secondly, we can be offended because we have an expectation. You know, we can be just like the first century Jews or first century Israel and have an expectation for Jesus that he is not going to fulfill. You might remember how in the Gospels the, the Jews would say, well, show us a sign from heaven. You know, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus never complied with their request. John ten twenty four. they said to him, if you are the Christ, Tell us plainly. Well, just like here, in that instance, he pointed to his work. We often want Jesus to operate on our time schedule, don't we? You know, we're really something, and we're in this Internet age, you know, where everything's got to happen immediately and within a half a second or something. But Jesus is not on our time schedule. But when I think about that, you know, I just want to thank God for his infinite patience, you know, his patience with each one of us, and and we all need his patience. So I'm glad that he's not on that sort of time schedule, but don't we oftentimes wish he, he was doing things according to, to the way that, that we would like to see them. So to return to the issue that I brought up at the beginning, I've been looking into and studying about why are so many young people who grow up in a Christian home leaving the church as they go away to college or move out on their own and go into the, to the workforce. And, you know, and I think about are we uh, preparing this rising generation for the world that they will face where uh, your faith is going to be aggressively attacked? And we've seen uh, 
just in these verses today and in the study today that even men such as John the Baptist and Elijah the prophet can have difficulties and, and they can find their faith in God being tested. And that will happen to each one of us. You know, Jesus promised it, that we would have a tribulation in this world. And you know, we might think about why is there so much suffering in the world? Well, it's because we're in a fallen world. You know, just as each one of us need to be redeemed uh, by Christ, this world also must be redeemed and restored. You know, Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So as I began preparing for today, you know, I found out I'd be teaching, you know what? I thought I would talk today a lot about a Christian about Christian apologetics, uh, reasons for faith, and, and things like that. And after all, our entire culture, including the secular schools, is aggressively teaching the apologetics of uh, evolution and secular humanism. But all this week, I thought about Pastor Darrell's closing last week, uh, and it caused me to decide against teaching on that. Uh, uh, and just try to bring the word. You know, uh, sometimes uh, we can make faith in Christ a little too complicated. So I want to quote something uh, last week, or quote a little from Pastor Darrell last week, the way he ended his uh, sermon. You know, at the end, he was speaking on the bride for Isaac, and he talked about God's plan of redemption that was set out in Genesis 3.15. You remember he's talked about that verse so much, and the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And he said this was fulfilled in Christ defeating Satan at the cross, that Christ as the last Adam would restore what was lost. In other words, the last Adam would restore what was lost in the first Adam. And he said, and this is a quote, that's the whole Bible. You know, that's what it's all about, that the father would secure a bride for his son, and that bride is the church, and he talked about the great lengths, the great lengths that God would go to to restore what mankind lost in the fall of Adam. And this is all for the glory of God. And just to quote him here, that's why the book of Revelation ends with new heavens and a new earth, God's people again in God's presence. And that's the end of the quote. And, and you know, as I thought about that, God is doing our redemption. He's going to great lengths to, to save us, but he's doing it his way. And that's the reason Jesus says here, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You know, the whole Bible can be summed up. Uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, which is just what uh, Pastor Darrell said. It uh, can be summed up pretty easily there. Sin entered the world and death through sin. And Jesus was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. We are weak in him, but we will live with him by the power of God. So judgment for sin will come. All these things that we're looking for and maybe things we're hoping for and all these, this is all going to come in God's time. And now through communion, as we have communion today, we're going to proclaim Christ's death until he comes. So before Jason and the men serving communion come up, uh, let me just invite anyone who's here today who's not a believer. Um, as the Apostle Peter said many years ago, be saved from this 
perverse generation. You know, God has appointed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. And he's given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. So if you don't know the Lord and if you haven't come to him, you know, don't let your your pride stop you. You know, lay your pride down and don't let the offense of the gospel uh, hinder you. You know, believe on the Lord, believe the good news and believe the gospel and be saved from this perverse generation. So...